All right, uh, Ezekiel chapter 20, beginning in verse 33. We're going to go to verse 44, Lord willing, tonight. Uh, the rest of the chapter, I'll talk about this next time we're together, uh, really kind of belongs to chapter 21, but that's just one of those things. So we're going to finish off at verse 44. But before we launch into our text, I want to give you a footnote to our last study, if you were here last week. If you remember, we were talking about the Sabbath, and I pointed out that the text spoke of it as an arrangement between God and Israel. Not uncommon uh, in, in Exodus, where you have the giving of the law, and it talks about the Sabbath. Again, many references to it being a commitment between God and Israel. It's never uh, binding on Gentiles. It never was. It never will be. It's something between God and Israel. So we talked a little bit about that. Then I mentioned that the Sabbath does not derive from the creation account where we read God rested on the seventh day. And that's an important point. So I want to say a little bit more about that before we go on because a lot of times people say, well, God rested on the seventh day. And so you have the Sabbath all the way uh, back to the time of creation. So let me just read from Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Uh, then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Now some, as I say, do argue that the Sabbath started with the seventh day of creation and therefore that makes it an ordinance for all time binding on all men. One problem with that is even if it were an ordinance, something that we're supposed to keep, it might not be an obligation. For example, God also gave marriage on the sixth day as an ordinance, as an institution, but not everyone must get married. There are those who have the gift of celibacy. It's not incumbent upon people to get married. So this would be the same argument. You could be a, a, a marriage tabulist or something. I don't know, I'm trying to make up a word. You know, where you say, well, everybody has to get married because on the sixth day, God married Adam and Eve. And if you're not married, you're not really a Christian. Same argument. So uh, even if it was an ordinance, it might not be binding. You'll notice that the creation account does not include any command from God to observe the Sabbath. The passage says nothing at all about what man should do, only what God did. And several times it says that God rested on the Sabbath. We don't have any idea what Adam and Eve did. God rested on the Sabbath. Uh, so we're trying to read this carefully. Further, there is absolutely no record in the Bible at all of any command to Adam's descendants to keep the Sabbath until you get to the law of Moses. When it is given, and when it is given, it's a sign between God and Israel. No record exists of it being observed from Adam to Moses. You can't find any of those guys keeping a Sabbath. And finally, the creation account speaks of the seventh day and doesn't use the technical term Shabbat. It's true the seventh day, Saturday, is the day on which the Jews keep the Shabbat, but that doesn't make the seventh day the Sabbath all the time. July 4th is our Independence Day, but that doesn't mean everybody observes Independence Day. We do because it, it's, it means something to us. It doesn't mean that much to the rest of the world. Uh, and so, yeah, it was the seventh day, it was Saturday, but that didn't become the Sabbath until God made it the Sabbath in his covenant between uh, himself and Israel. And so 
uh, just don't let folks judge you as to days, especially the Sabbath day. But then that expands into, well, then I should keep the diet and I should dress this way and I should, you know, really kind of get into these Old Testament ordinances. Uh, and if you don't think about it, you think, well, yeah, you know what? Seventh day, God rested. I guess we're supposed to rest. Uh, no, the, God rested. And it wasn't because he was tired. Uh, I don't know what Adam and Eve did. I, I think they went for a walk. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> now to our text for tonight. What does it really mean that Israel is God's elect nation and the Jews are his chosen people? Well, a distinction needs to be made between the nation and the individuals in the nation. Israel as a nation was the object of God's national election. It put them into a place of privilege and blessing. The great passage describing Israel's national election is Deuteronomy chapter 7 Verses 6 through 8, it says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep an oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage and from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, Israel's national election guarantees that God's purpose for choosing the nation will be accomplished and that the elect nation will always serve as a, or survive rather as a distinct entity. So we talk about Israel as God's chosen nation. It means that God made unconditional promises to the nation of Israel and as a result of that, that nation, Israel as a nation, will continue throughout human history and God will fulfill all of his promises to that nation. National election does not guarantee individual salvation. Just because you were a Jew doesn't mean you were saved. Each individual Jew within the nation must believe God and then it would be accounted by God for righteousness. These individuals make up what is sometimes called the believing remnant of Israel, the believers within the larger group of the elect nation. So the nation's elect, it's going to go forward through history. In that elect nation, some individuals are actually saved individuals. They constitute a remnant, a believing remnant. Now, when Jesus came to earth, he offered to the nation of Israel the promised kingdom of heaven on the earth. The Old Testament is filled with promises of the coming of the king, the offer of the kingdom, the establishment of a kingdom of heaven on the earth. As you know, the nation, through its leadership, rejected the offer. The kingdom was thus postponed. It's going to be offered a second time at the second coming of Jesus to the earth. Meantime, the nation of Israel, as a discipline, has been dispersed throughout the world. Nevertheless, miraculously, they remain a nation which makes perfect sense since they are God's elect nation. A new entity, the church, is being formed while all this is going on. It's a mystery previously concealed, but now revealed in the time in which we live. When the church is complete, Jesus will return in the air to resurrect and rapture the believers of the church age. Then, you know, follows a seven-year period of time, the tribulation upon the earth. It is especially dedicated to revealing to individual Jews in the nation of Israel that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. 
Two-thirds of the Jews will be killed during the tribulation, but the one-third that survive will be a believing remnant at the end. They will be individual Jews who have personal salvation. The Lord will return to earth. The believing remnant will recognize Him as their Messiah. At that time, it will be possible to say that all Israel is saved. The elect nation will finally consist of only the believing remnant. And so that's God's plan. Our text at the end of chapter 20 looks towards this future time, towards this dispersion of Israel throughout history and up till now and to the future and their regathering. And so in verse 33 of Ezekiel 20, As I live, says the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with fury poured out, I will rule over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, with fury poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will plead my case with you face to face. Just as I pleaded my case with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will plead my case with you, says the Lord God. Now the Jews being addressed were not scattered in many countries at that time. They were in Babylon mostly. I'm not saying there weren't Jews elsewhere. The Assyrians had taken Jews away and and all. But for the most part, Israel had been a nation again in their homeland and they were now subject to Babylonian control and exile in Babylon. They would remain in Babylon for 70 years, then be brought back to Jerusalem. This scattering that we're looking at here in Ezekiel in the end of this chapter is a uh, future Uh, scattering a future dispersion. The Jews would be scattered, as you know, in 70 A.D. when Titus and his legions destroyed Jerusalem, leaving no stone unturned. It is that scattering that God was prophesying here and talking about. They'd be scattered into the wilderness of the peoples, meaning out of the Holy Land and all through the world. Historically, this is exactly what has happened to Israel as a nation. God said a time would come when He would again plead with them. He compared it to when He first delivered the nation from bondage in Egypt. Only in this future deliverance, they will come from all over the world. Then in verse 37, I will make you pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge the rebels from among you and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the country where they dwell, but they shall not enter the land of Israel then you will know that I am the Lord. This phrase, pass under the rod, is terminology borrowed from the world of shepherding. The shepherd would inspect his sheep by using his rod to look beneath their coat, searching for defects or blemishes or injuries or parasites, those kinds of things. Here it is being applied to individual Jews. God will fulfill His unconditional covenant with them, seems to be a reference to the future new covenant of giving them a new heart to worship Him. And so we're looking ahead to the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign, the kingdom of God on earth with its center in Judea. God is talking about the one-third of Jews who would pass inspection, as it were, and constitute the believing remnant after the tribulation. He also indicates that many will not pass inspection. They will not enter the land of Israel or the kingdom for that matter. These are the two-thirds of the nation that die in their unbelief during the tribulation. This is a judgment specifically to Israel. 
This is the same kind of thing that you read about in Matthew 25, where at the second coming, Jesus says, I'm going to separate the sheep and the goats. In that, he's talking about the other nations of the world. Some of them will be believers in those nations. They will be his sheep and enter into the kingdom. But others will be non-believers. They're like goats and they will pass into judgment. And so, second coming of Jesus Christ is what we're talking about. Specifically in Ezekiel, his dealing with the Jews, the nation of Israel, uh, getting them to the point where all Israel is saved and now ready to receive the kingdom of God on earth that was promised centuries earlier, rejected in the first century, but now being realized. Uh, verse 39, a little bit tough. It says, as for you, O house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, go, serve every one of you his idols. And hereafter, if you will not obey me, but profane my holy name no more with your gifts and your idols. Now, some people suggest this is uh, holy sarcasm. Uh, and it sounds that way if you read it that way. But if we keep it in context and remember we are looking into Israel's future, it might, it might make more sense. Now, these words might describe the discipline the nation is under since the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. I say that for a few reasons. One is that the word for serve, I'm told, is a tech term used to describe the service of priests in the Jewish temple. You might recall that the Jews were profaning the temple. The, the time Ezekiel was writing, the temple still stood. It still existed. It hadn't been completely destroyed yet. Uh, and so there were priests serving in the temple. But they were profaning it by setting up idols in the temple. They're no longer going to be able to profane the Lord by bringing gifts and idols to him in the temple after this dispersion, since there would be no temple during this time of worldwide dispersion. Sometimes you just sit and you think, wow, I hadn't realized before, but since 70 AD, the Jewish people have not had a temple. No place to worship, no place to offer sacrifice. Uh, and this is what he's saying. He's saying, okay, uh, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to disperse you all over the world and you're not going to, uh, because you won't obey me and you're not going to be able to profane my holy name with idols anymore. Uh, he, he'll put an end to it because there won't be a temple for them to do that in. And that's the state that exists today. Now that's all going to change in the future. And so we pick it up in verse 40. On my holy mountain, on the mountain height of Israel, says the Lord God, there all the house of Israel, all of them in the land, shall serve me. There I will accept them, and there I will require your offerings and the first fruits of your sacrifices together with all your holy things. And so this is a promise that there will be a future temple on the holy mountain, on the mountain height of Israel. Worship will be reestablished. And as you know, we follow the news and the trends regarding the rebuilding of the temple. We know from passages in Daniel and the Revelation that a temple will exist during the seven years of the Great Tribulation. Uh, but the Tribulation temple is not really a temple that excites the Lord because the people that are serving in that temple, they're not believers in the Lord. They're non-believing Jews uh, they're not building that temple for Jesus Christ. Uh, they're doing it as a kind of a national uh, thing. And so the tribulation temple isn't something that God is all excited about. He's not going to fill it with his glory. Uh, that's not going to happen until the Lord returns. Still, I get excited to realize that a temple must exist in the tribulation. 
And there are tons of efforts to build it uh, because it means that we're nearing that time. The rapture is always an imminent event. It doesn't make the rapture any sooner because the temple is getting closer. We could be raptured imminently. But you understand, I mean, it's exciting in the times in which we live to see the preparations for the temple, the Temple Institute in Jerusalem. They're, they've got all kinds of utensils built. They've, you know, Because of uh, modern genetic research, they can identify who the priests actually are, whether you have the Kohanan gene to be a Kohen or a, a priest, and uh, they're building the... the you know, all of the altars and all of those things. They've discovered how to make the blue dye from this little snail. It's a thing that was lost for centuries and now they've realized how to make this blue dye. All they're lacking in one sense is the red heifer. Uh, and, you know, of course, that's if God wants there to be a red heifer born, uh, there will be. As I've told you, the actual site of the temple is probably not where the Muslim mosque now sits. You've seen those famous pictures of the Dome of the Rock. And, and when I was first saved in the 70s, uh, the thinking of prophecy teachers then with the current knowledge was, well, obviously the, the Muslims built that temple, that mosque, right on top of the Jewish holy site to profane it and to claim it for themselves. And so there was a lot of talk about blowing up the Dome of the Rock so that the Jews could uh, build their temple there and it got people thinking that maybe that's what was going to happen when Russia came down and all. And so there was a lot of wild speculation. Then along comes a couple of uh, different archaeologists with things like ground penetrating radar and, and some really good new technology. These guys come along and they say, hey, wait a minute, we've taken measurements and they argue with each other. Uh, we're not sure which one, but both of them make compelling arguments for the actual holy site, the, the, where the, the, the Holy of Holies is, not anywhere really near the Dome of the Rock, at a different location, making it possible for the Jewish temple to be rebuilt without disturbing the Dome of the Rock. Then you start to see, oh, that's kind of exactly what it says in the Revelation, that there will be an outer court of the Gentiles, leave it alone. And they will coexist in that last time. That makes sense with the treaty that the Antichrist enters into with the Jews because it's a peace treaty allowing them to build their temple and, and, and trying to hold everybody together. That's not going to happen if you start blowing up Muslim mosques. you know. And so, so that's very interesting. Then you say, well, how are they going to build a temple like that? They, they've only got a couple of months, really, you know, it, you know it, at the beginning of the tribulation to do that. And the reality is, when we talk about the temple, I used to think as a young Christian, I thought, well, the temple, you look at Herod's temple and uh, you see all the models. Remember, the, you know, it's all destroyed now, but you see the models of Herod's temple in the giant courtyards and the stones and all this fantastic architecture. And you think, yeah, even in modern times, it, uh, that's quite a project. I mean, that's going to take months and months to finish. The reality is, the temple is only the holy place and the holy of holies. It's just a really, I think, I'd probably get my figures wrong, but I think it's only about 1,200 square feet at the center of all of that. Everything else that was built was built around it. You probably in your Bible have a picture of the Old Testament tabernacle. It was a huge tented, or what was a huge area fenced off by fabric, tent, uh, you know, a fabric fence, and in the center of it, that was the, temp, the tabernacle with those two chambers. And so really, I don't say this disrespectfully, but you could throw up a tabernacle in no time. 
I mean, it, there's nothing to putting up a tabernacle uh, and getting that thing together. Uh, two relatively small rooms and you'd be good to go. Uh, verse 41, I will accept you as a sweet aroma when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you have been scattered and I will be hallowed in you before the Gentiles. Israel, God's elect nation, will be the key nation in the millennial kingdom. Jerusalem will be the capital of the world. Verse 42, then you shall know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel, into the country for which I raise my hand in an oath to give your fathers. God will keep his promises, all of them, to the letter. Now, a lot of people think that God is through with Israel as a nation. For example, there's a theological position called amillennialism. It means no millennium. <clears throat> to be fair, the people who are amillennial do believe there is a millennium. And so they, some of them who are more intellectual, I think they call it realized millennialism or something like that. Anyway, uh, so it's not that they don't believe, they believe that we're in it now. They believe it's a spiritual millennium. Uh, and so, but it's a, it's a position that's held uh, that the thousand years mentioned in Revelation 20 over and over and over again are not a real thousand years. It's just a symbolic number. And that the millennium has already begun and is identical with the current church age. Amillennialists hold that while Christ's reign during the millennium is spiritual in nature, at the end of this church age, Christ will return in a final judgment and establish a permanent physical reign. And so their idea is that, you know, we're waiting for the rapture, the great tribulation, the second coming of Christ, the millennial kingdom, premillennialism. These people are saying, no, God's done with Israel. We're in the spiritual millennium now. We're to make the world better for Christ. He will return at, the, at some unspecified time and then he will establish a forever kingdom, eternity. And so that's their position. It's popular among the denominations that consider themselves reformed. Along with denying a literal thousand-year kingdom, they deny both a national restoration of Israel and the salvation of the believing remnant of Israel. They say there is really no future for anything Israel, only for the church. If you're a Jew, you can still get saved. I mean, they're not... Well, I suppose there could be anti-Semitism in some of these movements historically, because everybody seems to hate the Jews at some point or another. But we're not suggesting they hate Jews. They just think it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. That's all been wiped out. God's just dealing with people on the basis of their individual salvation. So there is no further plan for the nation of Israel. Now, for us, the big problem with amillennialism is that it doesn't take the Bible in a plain, literal sense. It obviously spiritualizes these passages and it's, they're able to say, uh, God says there's going to be a thousand-year reign, and he uses the word thousand-year about seven times in Revelation 20, but he doesn't really mean that. It just means some extended period of time. Uh, and, the, and so they spiritualize these numbers and different things. But that's not all. If God isn't going to keep his promises to Israel, then two things begin to trouble me. I ask myself, why not? Is he therefore unable to keep his promises? Is he unwilling to keep his promises? Is he unfaithful in his promises? That's a big problem. If God made these unconditional promises to Abraham about his physical descendants and now he's decided not to keep them, 
then I, I have those questions. And second, if God can renege on his promises to Israel, then I should throw my promise box away. When I pick out that promise and I take it and I stand on it in that time of trial and struggle and difficulty, cast my cares upon him for he cares for me. Does he? Did he for Israel if he cast them away? And so you see, this is a real problem. It's a bigger problem than just an intellectual problem. It's a problem with the character and the nature of God. And so, you know, there's no perfect systematic theology. Uh, we'll all get it right when we go to heaven. But you don't want to adopt a theology that begins to erode the character of God, where you come to the conclusion that maybe he's not going to keep his promises. Uh, I need those promises, don't you? I've got to have them every day. Uh, you know, and... and uh, the, the farther I am from God, the, you know, the more I, I'm, I'm backsliding perchance, the more I need them. And so, um, really, all you need to do to see that amillennialism is, uh, is incorrect is look at the rebirth of Israel as a nation. May 14, 1948, just as prophesied. I have, it's kind of comical, I was going to bring it out, but we don't have time. I have a, a good, solid book of systematic theology by a Reformed scholar, recognized Reformed scholar, great guy, good stuff. And uh, in it, he makes statements about this, and he says, this is a paraphrase, but he says, Israel will never be a nation again. You know, God is through with Israel. Well, it was published, first published in, in the early 40s. Of course, I think it should have been revised in 1948. You know, any normal person would have said, oh, wait a minute. You know, at least take that sentence out, you know, and stuff. But uh, so anyway, uh, sometimes you're just not dealing. And now I understand why they came to those positions. I'm not a big, you know, I'm not the greatest guy on church history, but I do know that there was a time there when the church, you know, in the reign of Constantine and a little bit afterwards, church, state, everything looked pretty groovy for the church, you know. Uh, the church was rich, it was powerful, it, it looked like the church was bringing the kingdom of heaven on earth. And so all of a sudden, what was happening started to affect the theology of the men who were doing this and say, oh, this is the city of God, this is the millennial kingdom, look at what we're doing, we have Christianized the world. Uh, and, and, you know, now, then others say, well, yeah, all this talk about the rapture and all that, nobody ever believed that. Oh, that's what everybody did believe until the church was corrupted during those times. And so, anyway, uh, enough about that. I think you know what we're saying. We're premillennial. We're looking for Jesus to come imminently, any moment. And then God says, this is what's going to happen on the earth. And I'm going to keep my promises to Israel. And there's coming a time when all Israel will be saved. They'll be the descend physical descendants of Abraham, just as I promised, because they are my elect nation. Verse 43, And there you shall remember your ways and all your doings with which you were defiled. You shall loathe yourself in your own sight because of all the evils that you have committed. Think of this verse in light of what you read in Zechariah 13, 8 and 9, <clears throat> describing a similar scene. Uh, Zechariah says, It shall come to pass in all the lands, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it, talking about Jews, I will bring the one-third through the fire, the tribulation. I will refine them as silver is refined, test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. God's going to reveal himself to Israel through the tribulation and the remnant will be saved and call upon the Lord. They will loathe themselves because of all the evils committed by Israel as a nation, as God's elect 
nation. I mean, we can't even imagine the, the, that, but think of, if you can, I mean, just for a minute, try and imagine being a Jew at the end of the Great Tribulation. I mean, wow, you know, worse than any disaster movie you've ever seen. And, and you're, you're alive and you've survived and you, all of it comes together, not just all of it you know, that's going on in your life or for the last seven years, but all of human history dawns on you in one moment when you see Jesus Christ come back from heaven and you understand God's amazing plan throughout history and especially for Israel, and you know how Israel has rebelled and kicked against the goads and, and set up idols and how God has had to discipline but yet always have His hand upon them and finally bringing that to fruition. And it, it must be overwhelming emotionally. Verse 44, Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have dealt with you for my name's sake, not according to your wicked ways nor according to your corrupt doings, O house of Israel, says the Lord God. The mercy of God. This is a strong statement of Israel's <clears throat> excuse me, election as a nation. God will accomplish His purpose in and through them. Their doings may be corrupt throughout their history, but that cannot void His promises or His promises. Uh, and so what a, what a tremendous thing, the faithfulness of God to His elect nation, to the remnant within that nation, and of course to us, to you and I as believers in Jesus Christ. Uh, we'll just close with this. I've said this before, but I believe it's true. You cannot ever understand Bible prophecy unless you take it literally and distinguish between Israel as a nation, the descendants of Abraham, and everybody else, the Gentiles. And when you start to hear things, people talk about these other kind of alternate views of prophecy, amillennialism, post-tribulationism, preterism, whatever they call it, it's almost always because they have some strange view of Israel and God having not just postponed the kingdom, but actually just He's done with Israel as a nation and now everything is moved over into the church. And uh, that, that doesn't work on really any level. It doesn't work on a theological level and it doesn't work on a personal level. Uh, what works for me is that Jesus is coming. Amen? Amen.